you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. As I speak, it's Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023. It's the day uh, that boomers know is the day that uh, John F. Kennedy died. He went up younger than a boomer knows that. Uh, so, um, or died. he was kind of killed in Dallas. Uh, and uh, I have a distinguished guest waiting to talk. We're not going to be talking about that, but this is a little item I saw in political today, and I just had a smile. Uh, <laughs> politics in Chicago. You know what? There's war all over the world, but in pol- in Chicago, apparently, people try to be uh, civil. Uh, so um, uh, there was a party uh, that Tom Serafin throws. Tom Serafin's a noted PR guy here in the city of Chicago. He's been operating for a long, long time. Uh, it's a Christmas party at the Ser- Serafin PR firm. Uh, throws every year and all the movers and shakers in Chicago politics are there. All the great reporters, all the great pundits, all the great politicians, all the great campaign managers, the strategists, anybody who's all the who's who's. Of course, I've never been there. Uh, that's okay, Tom Serving. You don't have to invite me anytime soon. Uh, and um, so anyway, there was a funny little bit uh, in political shout out to Capos. There's a picture. Kim Fox, the outgoing uh Cook County State's attorney posing with uh, Johnny Cass. Uh, and know that not Johnny Cash, millennials, the singer. Okay. I know you guys, that's the only Johnny Cass you know. It's Cash. He's C A S H. This is Johnny Cass. Most millennials don't know him anymore. He used to write for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, and I've discovered most millennials don't read the newspaper. Uh, in fact, they didn't. I'll never forget talking to a journalism class. Oh my God. A journalism class. Okay. I'm going to sound like such an old baby boomer here, distinguished guest, but this is true. It was sometime in the O's. And I was talking about the Tribune back in the day, like more people people actually read the newspaper and I was talking about the this columnist John Cass in the Tribune and I literally the typical blank face that you get <laughs> when you see when you've mentioned something and nobody knows anything like with, if anybody tells me about an app I'm like mm, what's that uh, so that was the kind of face they had and I had to explain journalism students this is one of the most powerful uh, columnists in the city of Chicago he's in the newspaper you're studying to be journalists 
Hello. Uh, but uh, Johnny Cass uh, is MAGA's man. I would say he's MAGA's man in Chicago, except he moved to Indiana. And he's, I can't say he's MAGA's man in Indiana because Indiana's crawling with MAGA. Magites, uh, we're everywhere. Uh, so he's just kind of like one of a crowd uh, in Indiana. But he kind of stood out when he was writing for the Tribune because he was he wore his MAGA on his sleeve, man. He was proud of it. Almost got to give him credit, you know. A MAGA, I believe everything MAGA believes. And as such, he hated Kim Fox. He hated Kim Fox, but and George Soros somehow or other, you know, George Soros and Kim Fox and the world, according to Jumpshot Johnny Cass, were responsible for all the crimes in the city of Chicago. And if we could somehow get rid of them, there would be peace in the city. Anyway, here they are at this party, and they got their arms around each other. They're like, I love you, man. I'm like. <laughs> Seraphim, we got to send you over to the Middle East, okay? You're you a peacemaker. You gonna bring Johnny Cass and uh, Kim Fox together? You know when they separated? Oh my God, Kim Fox, don't lie to her friends. I can't stand that mother. <laughs> but she had a smile on his face. There was that old song uh, that Cass may know because he's a little older. Smile on your face, the backstabbers. Uh, Anyway, I thought that was hilarious. Those two like, yeah, look at us. We get along. <laughs> I don't think anybody in the city of Chicago, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest this, has done more to demonize Kim Fox, unfairly, I might add, uh, than John Cass. I mean, he's up there with the Republican hit squad. And, you know, all those little scared, nervous uh, North Side liberals that are just always in a fetal position over something that Kim Fox has done, you know. And, oh, my God, uh, Jesse Smollett. It's outrageous. <laughs> I'm outraged by Jesse Smollett. <laughs> a lot of journalists were outraged by Jesse Smollett. I don't know. You know they were torturing black guys in the basement of uh, police stations in Chicago. They didn't outrage them nearly as much as Jesse Smollett. We must do an investigation right now. Anyway, peace reigns between Kim Fox and John Cass. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest. We have a lot to talk about. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Ramana Hussein. I'm a columnist and a member of the editorial board at the Chicago Sun-Times. Yeah, she is and a dear friend of this show. Uh, so on the day before Thanksgiving, I want to thank you for coming through for me time after time. Ramana Hussein, for four years, you were awesome in my book. Um, I know you got a few thoughts about uh, Christmas parties uh, with media types and PR people and politician. Everybody's like, I love you. And then behind the scenes, they're all sticking each other in the back. <laughs> what a bunch of phonies. It's Peyton Place. Your thoughts, Ramana Hussein. <laughs> well, I have a lot to say. First of all, I wanted to say that I have been invited to these uh, Tom Serafin parties but I've never been to one. So I don't think I got an invite this year or maybe I lost it in the mail or maybe they saw my columns on the Middle East and decided not to invite me. But, but, <laughs> and I also, I don't know if we talked about this then before, but I almost work for John Cass. Um, many, many years ago, I worked for the Ch Chicago Tribune. I was a one-year resident there. Um, they have a residency program. I think it's runs two years now, but at the time, I think it was a one-year program. So my friend, um, a friend of mine, um, Liam Ford, um, who has now left the Ch Chicago Tribune, who's a longtime Tribune um, writer, we were we worked at City News together. So Liam was leaving. My residency was about to expire, and nobody offered me a job. And he's like, well, one way you can stay is, like, if you want to apply to, you know, to be Cass's leg person, you know, I'm leaving. And so I found out about it. I put my name and then I think like nine other people applied. And I have to tell you, 
that I can't, I, I was down to the final like two and or three and um, John ended up going with someone else. Um, but I have to tell you, who's really gracious about it. And I, I remember telling him, I can tell you during our interview um, that we had the one-on-one interview, I told him, um, well, and this, and this was be- before he, be, you know, before, you know, for all the kids who are listening, this is years before, this was like 2001, be- years before MAGA even happened. But, you know, I told him, I'm like, well, sometimes I don't really agree with your columns. And he's like, that's okay. You can think of me as your crazy uncle. And we had a pretty good conversation and I ended up not getting the job. And then a few months later, I ended up working as a leg person for Michael Sneed, the columnist at the, at the Sun-Times. Because a friend, this is like, it's crazy how I ended up at the Sun-Times. Um, someone I went to grad school with was going on maternity leave. And she's like, I don't know, this is a temp job. It could lead to something. And I was looking for a job because I'd left the Tribune residency program. And so I, that's how I ended up at the Sun-Times. And then I have to tell you, John Cass called me. And he, you know, he said that, you know, he wished he could hire me. And he said, you know, it, it was a really hard decision. And he said that he I'm, he was really glad that I ended up at the Sun-Times. And so he's always been nice to me. But in the years since, I, I mean, if I saw him personally and we sat in a room, I would tell him that I do not agree with his columns. And I think he would probably know that of what he knows of me. But I mean, just personally, he's been nice to me. But at the same time, I just can't stomach the things that he writes. And I think it's funny that you're talking about because you're so about Kim Fox and John Cass. And, and I'm not saying that they love each other, but it's so funny. Like, you know, don't we see Hillary Clinton in the same room as Donald Trump or like laughing at Trump jokes or like, you know, jokes that he made or, you know, the Clintons went to not post 216. Yeah. Just yeah. Before. Yeah. They, uh, he was at the wedding. Um What's that Clinton kid? I forget Was it name. Chelsea? Chelsea Clinton's? Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying Kim Fox and John Cass hang out together, but it is interesting. Like, I, I would I would have liked to been a fly on the wall. I didn't know that uh, Seraphim had his party already. I thought they had it later in the year, but I, I don't know. Like I said, my invite got lost in the mail or I didn't get invited this year, but I have been invited. And, and you know, to be honest, it's like, how many journalists, I mean, I'm sure some journalists who cover certain things do go to these parties. I probably have gone to like, you know, of people that I cover or like, you know, anything related to that. Um, when I used to cover criminal courts, they used to, they had a, you know, a party after like some huge trials. And so like this one guy used to coordinate the media. Um, he was a former Gacy prosecutor. So he would have parties. So I went to like his one or two of his parties and, He'd always be like, oh, you got to come to my party. And I did. And it was all these like and then I met all like all the attorneys who were represented Gacy and like, you know, all the all the judges were there from the courthouse. It was kind of it was kind of interesting and weird. And there's also I have to tell you, Ben, I have a friend or, you know, this woman that I went to grad school with. um, She always did. She was a prosecutor at at Cook County prosecutor. We went to high school together. And so she always had like a a charity party. It was for like the lighthouse for the blind. And she'd always invite me because we went to school together. And then every time I went to these parties, these prosecutors would kind of look at me and be like, why is she here? And they would be like frowning. And then I'd be like, well, hey, I know Megan from high school. I have to explain myself because they didn't they didn't look comfortable that I was there a lot a lot of the time. So I, I I have been invited to some of these Christmas parties. Ben, I'm sure you have to use your invite in the mail. 
but I just no. haven't gone to many of them. And I'm someone who likes no. to go to parties. I just think it's just a little weird. No, you're a party uh, animal. Uh, that's something about Romana you may not realize, people. She's the loves the parties and is the life of the party. She came to one of our uh, infamous Hanukkah parties we used to have before COVID, and she was rocking with those millennials. Uh, and uh, But here's the thing about journalists. I'm going to let this cat out of the bag. Uh, and so all you uh, non-journalists, you can take notes on this. Uh, I'm not saying that journalists are cheap. I am not saying that at all. I'm saying that if you give a journalist free food, they are there. Okay. And like, so Tom Serafed, free food and booze journalists are like, wait a minute, I don't have to pay for it. Hold on. Let me just make sure I understand this. It's free. Uh, what time does it start? Ding dong. I'm here. They got the guacamole dip, dip all over their chins. Cause that's the other thing about journalists tend to be sloppy eater. <laughs> I know I'm just stereotyping you. You know I love you, journalists. Yeah, we're about to do a really serious thing, the journalists. Yeah. Well, we used to have uh, free pizza at the Sun Times on Fridays, and I was never there because I was at the courthouse. And this is when we were um, connected with the reader, and and at that time, Mick, my my husband, if anybody knows, um, he used to work at the Sun Times, and he doesn't like like store-bought pizza. He needs it to be homemade. So I remember he'd be like, oh my God, everybody just goes nuts when the pizza comes. And it was, it was, I go told, I told him, I go, I would probably be in line too. Cause I love pizza. I'm kind of like a pizza monster. So, um, I think I only got to do it once or twice when I was in the office and then they got rid of it. And I'm like, why did they stop this when I started? But I, it, it was kind of funny because I used to say it was kind of like the walking dead. I don't know, Ben, if you ever watched that show, but it's like all these sad journalists when the pizza comes, it's like, they're like, zombies all coming towards the pizza really slowly so i said it was like the walking dead whenever you'd see like free food and and you know ben the other thing i would do um if i had something at home and nobody was eating it and i was like uh you know i would just put it on a table at in the newsroom and um it would be gone within like it, oh, within like 10 yeah. minutes so whenever you have like food and you want to get rid of it, just bring it to like the journalists. No, I there was that moment when I had the show at the Bright One at the Sometimes at that lovely studio. I loved it in those good old days. And uh, every now and then they put food out, and the food like I would like maybe Ramada would come into the studio. There's food, by the way, blah blah blah, in the in the uh, conference room or whatever it was. And by the time I was done with my show, I get there, it would just be like the radishes. Like, like that's it. <laughs> Even the journalists don't eat radishes. Uh, and, uh, by the way, I just got to say, I'm not the one who came up with the gag about John Cass and John Cass. Shout out to Dr. D Dennis, my old producer. Love you, man. Uh, one time I was ranting, railing about Johnny Cass and Dennis on the mic. He was very honest. He goes, you talk about the singer. And that's when I started doing the joke. Not the singer, ladies and gentlemen, it's John Cass. It's Johnny Cass. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, I just like you or I want to be the. the I got to say this. Your thing about John Cass. I feel the same way about Nick Spazzato. And Nick Spazzato is the far right wing alderman uh, in the city of Chicago. All my lefty friends just can't believe that I like him. But I genuinely like the man. Uh, I've, always, I've known Nick for a long time. So I don't like his politics. And I know he doesn't like mine. But what can I say? Uh, I just I feel toward Nick Spazzato the way you feel toward John Cass. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think if I saw him, I would let him know how I feel. And I know Nick Spazzato. I don't agree with his politics either. I just, I just, I guess I would just want to be chummy with John Cass, you know, but he's, I'm just saying he's been really nice to me. But then, you know, I know what you're saying. I know what your, your lefty friends are saying, because sometimes like, I mean, there was like columnists at the Sun Times and they were so right wing and everybody's like, oh, he's such a, he's such a nice guy. And I'm like, He's writing things about like 
like you know he's saying like the craziest things i i and they're the they're racist so you know what i mean and i'm like i don't i i just i i don't know like you can be and i know what you're i know what you're saying it's just but it's one of those things where i'm like but you're writing this and then you're emboldening people to think this way so I don't know. I, I, I just know. I and, I and like I said, John Cass has always been nice to me. But if I saw him I, and I was with him for long enough, I think I would say something. But he always says hi to me. Um, th- that's just how it was like, you know, from like many, many years ago. And, you know, I, I'm I'm someone who like very much complains about people, especially when their politics are out of control. But I know people will will be surprised, but I'm I'm I try to be nice to people even if I find their politics abhorrent. But still, there's a part of me that just wants to punch some people. But no, I, I'm not violent, so I try to keep I try to stay calm. Uh, and I just want to point out before we move on to the real serious topic, uh, I didn't want to mislead people, uh, so I don't want anybody to walk away from this conversation thinking that John Cass had avocado dip on his suit at the Seraphin party. He did not have avocado dip. Uh, on his suit. So uh, John Cass knows how to eat. Okay. He may lo- enjoy free food as an ex-journalist. I uh, probably hasn't got that out of the system, but he can restrain himself and he can have like a little napkin and keep it from going on his tie or whatever. All right. I had to get that out of the way. Uh, let's move on to far more serious uh, matters dealing with journalists. Very p- powerful column you wrote uh, last week. Um, reminding folks of the price that we pay um, for a free press, uh, particularly in Gaza right now. And um, uh, I forget how many, 20, I forget it from your column, how, how many journalists have been killed. 53, uh, 53, 53 to wow. today's date. Uh, yeah. And then there was, um, I sent to you a, uh, a column uh, or a story uh, that just illustrates uh how frivolous things are in this country about the, uh, the, the, the football sideline reporter who makes up stuff. Uh, Rick Tallender wrote, a, I thought, a very good column. Uh, shout out, Rick, dear friend of the show. And uh, a very good column about uh, why even with something as frivolous as sideline reporting in a football game, truth matters. And people turn to journalists to be a source of truth. Uh, and uh, and some journalists are paying for their desire to present the truth with their lives. So um, shout out to uh, all the great journalists of Thanksgiving with a little gratitude uh, for people who put their lives on the line. Take it away. Give it, go a little further into this, Romano. Sure. Um, first of all, Ben, I have to say that you sent me that column from Rick Tellender, and then Mick pointed it out to me later in the day and so I made sure I read it. I I, be- I have to tell everybody I barely read our sports section. I'm not I'm not the targeted audience. I like sports, but I'm not like my brother Mick or you, like rifling through the newspaper for the sports. But Rick, she reads you every week. Okay, she, except for you, Rick. No, I, I, I do read some of his columns, and I like Steve Greenberg a lot. Oh, he's hilarious, man. He is so jaded. Steve he's so Greenberg. funny, and I've met him in person. You know, because you know, a lot of times you don't meet these like sports reporters because they're always out and about. He's really funny. And, and, and he's also married to a woman of color. So he always has funny, like, you know, as being the white guy in his family, he has like a lot of good takes on it on his Facebook page. But um, so, yeah, um, it's really sad actually. So, so far um, since October 7th, um, since Hamas, the Hamas attack, there was four journalists that were killed in Israel Two were at that music fest, um, and then two 
were at um, in like, I think there were just in different parts of Israel where some of the massacre was happening. But since um, Israel has gone into um, Gaza and, you know, bombarded it, uh, there's been um, to date, uh, this is based on data from the committee to committee for I should get I should get their um, name right. They're a committee to protect journalists. They're a nonprofit group. Uh, they basically have a tally of 53 journalists altogether. So the four Israelis that I mentioned. Then there's um, I believe there is 48, 46 Palestinians um, and three Lebanese journalists who have been killed. And um, you know, the Israeli government has been saying that Hamas is working so close to where these journalists are. But at the same time, um, you know, there's questions about um, whether they're being silenced or not, because right now there, you know, there's no international media. The main people who are covering what's happening on the ground are Palestinian journalists, because um, I think the international journalists, a lot of them, a lot of news organizations, you know, they're like, satellite, you know, offices have been bombed already. So there's not that many international journalists. There are some in international journalists, including CNN, who agreed to be embedded with the um, with the IDF, I believe, the Israeli military. And they, when they go in, they, you know, they're taken in by um, Israeli military personnel, and then they have to show them their footage before they go in, um, before they put it on air to make sure it's acceptable. So I just think that, um, I don't know, I, I just feel like I think that if this was happening in Ukraine or if this was, you know, Saddam Hussein or, you know, Iran killing journalists, I think a lot of people would be more in an uproar than they are or like paying attention. So um, when I wrote, wrote it, I, I wrote the um, column on Friday and the number was 42 journalists. And it kind of jumped up within like three days to uh, 53 altogether. And, and my boss did, said that she had, didn't even know this. So I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. And that's why it was important to me. And I did read Rick Tellinger's um, column. And I think it's sad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sports, but you can't make things up in journalism. I mean, we already have so many people in this country accusing the media of being fake news. And when you are admitting that you're putting fake news out there, I mean, what is it saying? And and, and it wasn't just her. I think Erin Andrews, who I, I know I know and recognize, she's also someone who's this was she a sideline reporter or was she just like a anchor? So she she was a sideline reporter too. And she admitted that um she does this too. And you're thinking to yourself, like, it doesn't matter how benign, because, you know, they were saying that the the woman who, you know, who's who admitted on a podcast that she does this, she was saying that, you know, she tried to think what the coaches were saying and tried to use um, benign phrasing so it wouldn't be offensive. And it was something that they would say, but you can't predict what people will say. And, you know, that's one of the key things about journalism. Like, you don't make, make things up. And when you're making things up, I mean, where's your credibility? And, and you know, none of these people have lost their jobs or, like, have been I, – I think there have been, like, critiques out there. But, you know, like you said, it's something frivolous. And Rick Teller did mention there are people who are dying because they're trying to put the truth out there. And here we have, like – you know, sideline reporters making stuff up. And so it's just, 
it's just kind of depressing. <laughs> in, in other words, you know, what's happening in the Middle East is depressing as, as it is, but it's like the reporters are being killed. And so, you know, so many people's voices won't get heard in a certain way, or we don't get to hear the narrative narrative from the Palestinian side. And then meanwhile, we have, I'm, you know, reporters here making stuff up. And, you know, of course, this isn't anything new. And, and, and I hope people realize that most reporters aren't doing this. But, you know, we have once in a while, we have heard like controversy. Um, I think you remember there was a Pulitzer Prize winning um, reporter who who admitted that she made stuff up for the story that she wrote. And so, we, you know, once in a while we hear about these things and it's, it's, it's saddening. And uh, someone also told me once, um, I think there's been a couple foreign correspondents, like, you know, when people are overseas, there's nobody there to fact check them. And so there's been a couple of cases. I remember like 15, 20 years ago, there was like a slew of foreign correspondents who got in trouble or lost their jobs because they were making stuff up. And, you know, these are, these are, you know, I think even like it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's football or something that's happening overseas, it's like a grave problem and it's something that shouldn't be done. So thanks for pointing that out, pointing Tellender's article out to me. And I did I did hear about this woman making, you know, admitting that she made things up. And isn't she trying to backtrack now at this point, like saying that, well, I really I really wasn't doing uh, that. And yeah, everybody, you know, like this, this we could do a whole show on apologies uh, I don't think I don't know if we ever did the deep dive on Carlos's apology. We, I've had that conversation with so many people on the show. Carlos Commercial Rosa, the Alderman, and the apology. They still wanted to censor him. Apologizing wasn't enough. Quitting position, <laughs> committee positions wasn't enough. Oh, you have to be censored. Um, but uh, you know, it's this this thing in the media, uh, which. How do I express this, uh, Ramana? Get your thoughts on it because you've been in the media for a long time. Like, y- you have to know everything. And this is like a disease that journalists have. They have to know everything. Uh, and I've joked about it. There's like <laughs> young journalists I know, I'm not giving out any names, who I'll be telling them something and they'll start uh, Googling it right away. And then they can act like they know. And I'm like, you know, it's okay if you don't know something. Uh, you can look it up, you can research it, you can read about it, you know what I mean? But you don't have to, you don't have to act like you know everything. And there's a sense that a journalist has, it's been drummed into their heads by their bosses who don't do any journalism, by the way. I'm just going to point this out. They're the editors. They just, you know, fix the copy. Sorry, editors. But you drum this into their heads. So there's a collateral damage where reporters feel like compelled to know everything. And half the time, the stuff they know isn't right. Half the time, the stuff they know has been fed to them by somebody with like a, an agenda, you know. And so she felt compelled. Like when you talk to her, uh, when the, uh, the, the new thing in, in football, Ramana, is when the coach leaves, uh, comes onto the field after halftime, uh, he gives an interview with the sideline reporter where he goes, well, we're going to tighten up our defense, something like totally innocuous, which meaningless stuff. And then the sideline reporter is compelled to repeat it to the so they've heard the cliches so much from the coaches that their attitude is like oh i can repeat this cliche as much as much i i ben can do it having heard somebody you know what i mean well we got to tighten up our defense uh, we got to hit a little harder and come on uh you know uh so yeah even so, even even i could do it and i don't even like i don't even understand football i'm just saying even i could do it like i i know i've watched two football games and even I know like, you know, Hey, we got to go out there and give it our best tomorrow. And 
our defense could have played better. You know, I could, I could, I could make things up too. So um, yeah, I, I, I do. Ben, I think you raised a good point. Um, one of the things that I, I, I like about myself is I know I don't think, I'm, I mean, I'm sure some people think that I think I'm smart, but I, I don't think I'm the smartest person in the room all the time. And I think one of the things that journalists forget a lot of times is because they're so self-serious. They're so serious and they take themselves so seriously. And that's why I, talk, I like talking to you about pop culture, Ben, because I think there's so much in life to talk about. And I don't think you always have to talk about the news. And that's one of the things I think a lot of journalists are can be very insufferable. Like you sit around and everybody thinks they're the smartest person in the room. And and I and, and the best journalists I think are the ones who don't think they're the smartest person in the room. And that's why I kind of went into journalism because I'm a curious person and I don't think I know everything. So I feel like I learn. And that's what I like about journalism is that you're learning all the time. And yes, you do have to kind of be a mini expert on a lot of things, but it, that doesn't mean that you won't know everything. And I still don't think I know everything. I've been in this business for a long time and, you know, I learn something new every day when I cover different things, when I research different things for editorials. So I think that's one of the things that most journalists should understand is that you know, there's always more to learn and that you don't know everything. And maybe that just comes with age. Maybe I was a little cocky, but I don't think I was that cocky when I was younger. I always felt like I have to know more. And I, I really, when I first became a journalist and I worked for City News Bureau, I remember I didn't know anything about the city. Like I was just like, I heard about Verdoliac, I heard about Burke and just sitting at City Hall with all these veteran reporters, I learned so much. And um, I do I do like listening to people and, you know, even people I don't agree with, I, I think it's good to sit there and be open-minded about, you know, where people are coming from to understand the city, to understand, you know, our country, to understand the world. And yeah, sometimes I do think I know more than other people, but I do think it's good to always remember that you don't know everything. So I, I, I always tell, I always, I always, the best journalists, I think, are the ones who don't think they're that smart, I think. Uh, no, it's, and, and they're the ones who have like the, uh, I don't know if you never saw Columbo. Uh, I love Columbo, uh, the TV show from the 70s where Peter Falk played this detective and he, 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 he always acted dumb, way dumber than he, he was really cagey. And uh, so he would ask people and the, every, all the people, it would be always a rich person would commit a murder and the, they thought they were so much smarter than Columbo because they just thought they were smarter than a cop anyway. Uh, but I, I have a confession to make. I am insufferable. I will admit this. I will concede this. I'm upfront about this. Um, so whenever somebody tells me <laughs> anything with the news and they're, uh, not a journalist, uh, God, you know, like if it's not from Mick or you or somebody, I'll be like, where'd you hear that? Where'd you see that? Because I, my automatic assumption is you're not getting it totally right. You only half read it, or and then I find out they didn't actually even read it. Someone told them about it, so I go. So then I start breaking and, and start examining their sources. So, so where did your friend Billy? Okay, you heard it from Billy Bob. Where did Billy Bob see it? Well, I think Billy Bob read it on his Facebook feed. All right, there we go. How many times do I tell you? Don't trust anything you see on a Facebook feed, right? That's something that's. I, I, I do that with my mom because my mom will like say something that her friend said and it's just like insane and it makes no sense. Like one day, a few days ago, she was like telling me how one of her friends said that the migrants are all committing crimes here. And I go, where where did she get this information? And I, I was telling her, I go, please don't get news from your your friends. And I, I told her that I will I will talk to her if she needs. And I'm not saying I know everything either, but, you know, she was she was telling me about like, you know, all these different things. And they're just like. 
bizarre some of the some of the news her friends suddenly make up or I don't know got from I don't know God knows where but no I mean it's good to be informed that's different Ben I do and you know the thing the funny thing is my friends think that sometimes I'm smarter than all of them and they'll ask me like during when they're they're voting for like the water reclamation district before the elections and judges and I'm like oh and I'm like oh don't ask me I I use the cheat sheets too or I, I, I try to do research but I do send them articles and things like that I I think I think you're well informed Ben I I don't think I don't think you're insufferable from what I've seen I no, mean, I'm insufferable when I deal with uh, non-journalists who tell me uh, what they read in the news, and I, I don't take it at face value. I'm like, you know that line, if your mother tells you you love her, check it out. I'm kind of like that after years of doing this job. I mean, I've been doing this, th- just let's pause and think, no matter how long I've been a <laughs> working journalist. Oh, my God. Why couldn't I have done something like I don't know, go into banking or whatever. Anyway, uh, you know, I, mean, I could have been a great hedge fund guy. Uh, and, um, but you know, that's how I am. Like someone says something and I go, would you hear that? That's the first thing I say, would you hear that? Would you get that? What's your source? You know, you, did you read it? Or, and then a lot of people, I don't know. And then they get like, I don't know. I don't know where I heard it. Yeah. So you're no, no, no. I, I know you're you saying that's, that's different because you can actually cite sources. You know what I mean? But then again, we don't want to, you don't want to cite a sideline reporter who lies about things. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. So now it's like, I, I, I do try to cite things. I try to read. I mean, I think you're well-informed. I'm just saying sometimes if you're, I don't know if you've ever been with a room full of journalists and there's some that are definitely insufferable even among the journalists you're just like they think they're the smartest they're so smart and they, and some of them are listen some of them are smarter than i am but it's just like that's all they talk about journalism and i'm like god you guys are boring but i mean i mean there's i'm just saying that there's a lot to life than just sitting around talking about the news you the the article you worked on i i, I gotta say i will I got to say uh, that I was hesitant. I was go- ready to go, oh, my God, journalists are insufferable. I hate being with them. But one of the most enjoyable moments of this year, and I've written this and I've said this and I'll repeat it, was the car ride I took from Chicago to Milwaukee and back with three journalists, Mick Dumkey, Alden Lowry, and Danny Mialopoulos. We didn't stop talking from the moment we got in the car to the moment we said goodbye. I thought it was vintage material, good stuff. In the, so I guess journalists can be insufferable, uh, but the journalists I like, <laughs> I like them. No, He's my I'm, not saying, I'm not saying the people you know, I'm married to one, okay? So I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't be talking, but um, and I never thought I would marry a journalist, to tell you the truth. But no, I mean, I that doesn't I have a lot of friends who are journalists. I'm friends with a lot of people who are journalists. I'm just saying that um, I have friends in in the newsroom who told me they're friends with me and they like me because I'm different than most of the journalists. And I like talking about things that aren't journalism related. And you guys, I, I'm sure you guys had a great car ride, but you guys all know each other from a long time too. So yeah, it's like, laugh. and you guys went to a like Bulls it. game, so. Uh, all right. So I'm looking at the clock and uh, we really don't. Well, let's do the two deep dives or two dives. We'll talk killer uh, flower moons, which uh, had a huge impact on me. And um, and I also saw the Nicolas Cage movie. If you've seen uh, 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 what's it called? Um, Dream Scenario. If anybody has seen, I, I really two thumbs way up on that one, in my humble opinion. Uh, but we'll do a deep, mini deep dive. I got a feeling this issue will come to Chicago. You'll write about it. We'll take a, a larger deep dive. Fascinating story. I read about it in the Washington Post. I sent it to you. Of course, you already knew about it. Uh, I had a feeling you did. 
about Governor Newsom in California vetoing a bill uh, that would essentially, the bill was intended to obliterate caste, C, not John Cast, millennial. I know, God, I'm killing you guys with these cast sounds. C-A-S-T-E, cast. Uh, and um, you would think, I would think, here's my ignorance, my staggering ignorance, uh, Ramana, that nobody would object to a bill that was intended to obliterate castes or make it illegal to discriminate against someone or hold someone back because he or she belongs to a lower caste. But this was considered controversial uh, and pressure was applied uh, to uh, do so many vetoed it. I, don't, I think there's enough votes to override its veto. I don't know where it stands or right now. The, the article I read didn't update that. But um, I knew you, you'd have some insights in this, and I have a feeling this may come to Chicago, as my prediction, somehow or other to Illinois as well. Yeah, we'll, 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 probably, shoot, we'll probably shoot it down, just like we shot down the India resolution to say, because that talked about caste oppression, too. And, um, you know, I, I come from, um, you know, I'm from a Muslim family in India. Um, and so I, I don't know that much about, you know, I know about the caste system, like the general issues and... Um, a lot of the issues that are surrounded with the press class uh, cast and um, uh, some of the organizations have told me that instead of using lower caste because that enforces the mentality, but there's different castes. There's a caste system in Hinduism. And what a lot of people um, don't know is that it's still pretty much enforced in India. You know, Ben, one of the things we we're just talking about journalists a few minutes ago, and I personally would not know because, like, I, I can't tell from the last names what kind of caste someone is from. But this was um, an Indian journalist had pointed out to me that most journalists in India are from the higher caste, like from caste. Like, you know, they're like, it's hard for someone from an oppressed class cast to be, get into journalism. So that kind of gives you an idea. Like there's there's definitely some political leaders who, you know, have been able to, you know, rise up, but people kind of always remind them of the cast they come from. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like being black in the United States. Like if, you know, yeah, you can rise up, but in general, there's a, like, you know, and, and we, there's a book called Cast where they talk about, you know, where the author talks about how, um, the caste system in India is similar to the way black people have been treated in the United States. And what a lot of people don't know um, is that the caste system, because there's a lot of, especially in California, and this is why I think the bill started off in California. And there are different, I think there are different cities in the country that have adopted these resolutions against caste discrimination. But in California, particularly um, in Silicon Valley, a lot of these companies are a lot of Indians. And there's a lot of companies that have this problem because there's people who are in higher castes and they won't let people from certain castes like, you know, rise up. You know, the, there's this widespread discrimination and there's actually been articles written about it. I think it was Google. Um, if it's not Google, forgive me, Google. But um, Google was supposed to have um, an activist to talk about. Um, she's a Dalit. Dalit is from a it's a group of um people from the oppressed, there's an, that's an oppressed caste. And she was going to come and talk about, you know, the problems and um, all these Indian people didn't want anyone to talk about it. And so I think Gavin Newsom said something like, well, we already have something in the work, you know, in a law that says you can't discriminate, but don't tell me that he didn't have Indian groups, certain Indian groups come up to him and say, this is, you know, this is racist. So it's something that has definitely been discussed within um, the Indian diaspora. And 
Um, I know Muslims have usually been kind of, we get thrown cast aside as, as you know, we get treated like we're the oppressed caste. And I think a lot of, a lot of Americans who aren't South Asian, they're pretty ignorant about, about this stuff. You know what I mean? So they don't realize like, like, you know, we talked about this with, um, they had an Indian council in, um, on the state level, and it was basically designed to keep Muslims out. And um, the average um, American does not know that there's discrimination even within these groups. And um, someone had pointed out to me that even amongst the oppressed caste, there's a caste system within the oppressed caste. So there's like so many different subgroups. And it's like, it, because I'm not part of the Hindu community, I don't know that much about it, but I know it exists. And I know Muslims have adopted, they've kind of created a caste system too, Muslims in India. Like if you're from certain families, you're going to rise ahead. And if you, they find out you're from a poor background or you don't have that background, you will not succeed. So it's something that's um, very uh, detrimental in, in, in that's been used, it's used to oppress people in India and it has come here to the United States. And I think that's one thing people don't recognize. And that's what, um, you know, some of the things I've been writing about, about how people are using politics in India and the way people run things in India and they, they're trying to impose it in the government here. And I think a lot of people don't realize it. And, and that's what, that's why a lot of people were upset about the resolution that spoke against the discrimination and treatment of minorities, uh, you know, minorities and religious minorities in India and other groups. So that's why a lot of people were upset, including me. And and we're still, I have to tell you, Ben, we're still talking about it. It's a, it was a non-bonding resolution, but it upset people that in a city like Chicago, where we always talk about how we're so welcoming, although some some people don't want to be as welcoming anymore, it's just lip service. And so the fact that we had someone that considered himself a progressive alderman, Joe Moore, represent these groups that tried to block and got the resolution blocked, it says a lot. And it says a lot that about how ignorant a lot of Americans are and how easily they can, I guess, politicians can get bought to not to say the wrong thing. And, you know, we're seeing this, we're seeing this with discussion um, on the Middle East too. And it's just, it's, it's, it's just something that I think we're going to be hearing about. I think that, I think I, I, I have talked to some activists in Indian, in, who are Indian activists here in, in Chicago who are behind the resolution. Um, that's something that they're, they're working on too. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if we hear about this as well. Uh, yeah, the article I read in the uh, uh, Washington Post, which I urge everybody to check it out, it was a very fascinating article. Talked about how Gavin Newsom uh, was how was educated on this subject. I, I don't know if that's the correct word to use. I have to think about the right word uh, and to back off on it uh, from um, well-connected donors. Uh, so that cast. Uh, the well-connected donor cast. Uh, and uh, it just was a very interesting uh, analysis, Ramana, of all the dynamics at play in politics today, particularly in the Democratic side, uh, and how the Indian American community is really coming into its own. And what does that mean? You know, it's like, oh, it's not a monolith. They aren't all the same. And unmentioned in this article, you would not know if you just read this article that Muslims are Indians as well. You would not know that because they're not even mentioned in this story, you know, and it's. Just, well, yeah. And that's that's the thing that's so fascinating. It's like, well, you know, still people look at me and they go, oh, I, I tell them I'm Indian and, you know, I have a Muslim name. And they're like, you know, for the longest time, people would be like, aren't you Pakistani? And I'm like, no, I'm 
I'm in, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you, you just realize people don't know that much about the history of India and, you know, and so it, 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 it is, you know, I try to educate people. Um, there was just a Diwali celebration at the white house and, there were some um, Hindu Americans who boycotted it because of what's happening, because of our stance on uh, Gaza. And so, you know, there's a lot of Indians are like solid, you know, where there's definitely there's solidarity in some groups. But look, look at look at Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. And, you know, it's like people don't realize like there's even amongst the Indians who are, you know, blue there's so many differences amongst us. Like I, I tell Mick all the time, I'm like, even the state my parents are from, everybody makes fun of us from being from that state, like Indian people. Like, you know, people from India don't want to admit they're from that state. And it's like, you know, it's like there's even divisions like amongst like different people from different states. And we all know, like people can tell like the way I speak Urdu because I speak it like my parents and they speak it like um, the state they're from, which is Bihar. And so like a lot of Indian people, if they're from India, they'll know that I'm a Bihari because of the way I talk. And so then people start making judgments about you on that. And so we have we have we have jokes about different people from India, too. I was to explain to Mick, I go, oh, you know, if you're from that state, you're cheap. If you're from that state, yeah. you know, we always we all have different stereotypes and like who's a better looking group and I can go on. One day I'll educate you on that. Uh, no, um, yeah, I look forward to that. Uh, every group does that. Every group has its own mini caste system, C-A-S-T-E. And the, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's the, the woman who wrote the book, Cast, that uh, Ramana alluded to. I urge everybody to read that book. Yeah, Excellent. sorry, I totally I, forgot. Uh, yeah, a great Chicago journalist. Uh, but, uh, I mean, oh, my goodness. Uh, every group, like... It, like Jewish people, when I first moved to Chicago, they'd be talking about the difference between uh, G German Jews and Russian Jews. I'm like, what the hell? I, I didn't realize this was a distinction. I actually went to school with a lot of people and I didn't realize until I was older that their parents are all from the Middle East. Like on my block, there was one girl whose family was from Lebanon and the guy I went on the bus stop with, his dad was from Egypt. So I had the Middle East contingent on my block, and I had no idea when I was when I was growing up. Like not from Israel, but from different parts. Oh, absolutely. That's a whole other thing. I mean, let's that's that that's a whole other conversation, you know. Uh, yeah, it's it's Jews from all over the world, and uh, the woman who's running for president of Mexico right now, who's the uh, front runner, a Jewish woman. Well, she wears a crucifix. Interesting. Uh, and um, just covering herself. Uh, but then uh, black people, I come to Chicago and I'm learning like the difference between uh, well, country black people, uh, west side black people and south side black people and black people who own homes. I mean, I'm learning this from black people. Oh my God, everybody's got a cast. Everyone's got to feel superior. To yeah. And the, and the funny thing is, Ben, like somebody will like tell me like, you know, they'll tell me about some Indian person who like I, I their viewpoints, I totally disagree with. And they'll be like, oh, aren't you happy? Like, oh, I think you might be interested. And I'm like, no, I'm like, why would I be interested in this? Like, it's like people think that just because you're Indian, you're going to like everything that some Indian does, you know, and I'm like, listen, I remember when Bobby Jindal was running for governor of Louisiana, like in the newsroom, people were like, oh, this is aren't you happy? And I'm like, not really. You know, what I mean? so it's, it's, it's funny. People think that I'm like, like every single Indian. And I'm like, uh, you really don't know that much about Indian. There, there's a, over 1 billion of us. And we all like are, 
at each other's throats all the time. <laughs> like, so. All right. Uh, let's close uh, with a little uh, movie conversation. Both of us have seen the movie. Both of us have read the book. Uh, we've not had the conversation about Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's latest. I'll, I'll throw out my thoughts and then you riff. Uh, I saw it once. I need to see it again. I didn't absorb it all. Uh, I thought De Niro was miscast in his role. I actually would have preferred if Leo Leonardo DiCaprio had played the role that uh, De Niro uh, played, and they given Leo's Leonardo's role to a really uh, talented young actor that no one ever heard of, preferably not a Brit, as I told you in my uh, text to you. Uh, there's other actors than Brits, Hollywood, uh, and uh, but aside from that, just got I just thought it was a really compelling story of racism in our country, uh, and. Uh, like a chapter of history I was completely unaware of. And I urge absolutely everyone to go check it out, even though it's three and a half hours long. Yeah, you're going to be sitting for a while. But it's I just thought it was beautiful. I didn't even look at the, the clock at all to watch it all. Um, when I was absorbed from start to finish. And my respect and love for Martin Scorsese is an all-time high. Your thoughts? Yeah, I thought overall it was a really good movie. And um, I've been listening, I've been reading and listening about criticism from Native American groups. And I thought Lily Gladstone did a great job too. A lot of, um, a lot of critics and a lot of Native American groups or Native American um, artists were just pointing out, they're like, it would have been better if it was from her viewpoint. Um, but I, I, overall, I enjoyed the movie. Um, Mick and I have had debates on whether the Leonardo DiCaprio really knew what he was doing, but I think he did know what he was doing. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about how, you know, white people are portrayed, you know, and, you know, I, I heard a podcast the other day on NPR where people are like, um, Hollywood still, you know, they made him so like, you know, kind of more of a kind of confused character. They're like, they just can't admit that this guy is like ready to like, you know, kill this woman's family. I, I just thought, um, you know, compared, I, 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 I totally get all the critiques, but I still thought overall it was a great movie. It was really powerful. And um, like you, Ben, I did not know about this part of history. And um, Mick and I have been talking about how, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of Native American history we didn't really learn when you think about it. I mean, when you're a little kid, you know, around Thanksgiving, which is tomorrow, um, you know, we would always, they'd always have us dress up, you know, as a Native American or a pilgrim, you know, and that's all we did. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the Trail of Tears, but, you know, it's just like African-American history. We learned maybe a little bit more about Black history in my high school, but very little about Native Americans. And we talked about them a little, and there's definitely sympathy there, but we don't get a full picture. And I think that's why a lot of the story kind of resonates and, um, I, I, I was talking to a colleague of mine at WBZ and she was like, oh, it'd be better if you um, didn't read the book. And I did read the book before I watched the movie because she she saw it with friends who didn't read the book and they were just shocked. She goes, I think it hits a lot harder when you don't know what's going to happen. And I, I just think the fact that that story was out there and Mick was asking me the other day, like why I think that the story still resonates and it really hits, you know, what's happening right now in the United States is pretty much encapsulated in this movie. You have like poor working class white people who don't think that people of color have, you know, deserve to have wealth or deserve to be successful. 
it's this is their right. And so I, I, I told him, I go, it really echoes the way this country is still to, to, to this day. And I have to tell you, Mick and I were kind of laughing about when they had their first date, because the first time Mick had dinner with me, he kind of asked me similar questions. Well, not like similar, but he was just like, why are you married? You know, and that kind of stuff. And I, Mick, is, Mick even looked to me during the movie and goes, this looks like it's like kind of like a first date. And we kind of made jokes about that and, you know. Leonardo, I thought Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio did a good job. Martin Scorsese, Scorsese, I know what you're saying, because he also, like you said, he was a younger character in the book. And Robert De Niro is like pushing 80, maybe, or in his 70s. And so I think this guy was in his like 30s or 40s in, in real life. And and Ernest, who Leonardo DiCaprio played, was in his 20s. But I do, I do I as someone who grew up when Dances with the Wolves was really popular and I thought was a good movie, you realize like what an injustice Hollywood has done with Native Americans. I mean, for a long time, you know, you had someone like Dustin Hoffman playing a Native American, right? Wasn't he Native American in that movie? Well, he was uh, um, the whole purpose of that. Or was movie. he a white guy? He was a white guy was who uh, raised by Native Americans. Yeah, uh, there were so many little movies big like man. that. Yeah. yeah, a little big man. I saw that in high, in high school. But then, like, I'm thinking, like, Dances with Wolves, was, you know, there's all these, like, white savior movies where this like oh this white guy comes and he understands the culture and he's so like so honorable and i'm like well why don't you show the native americans and i think i think you know with shows like reservoir dogs you're kind of finally having the voices of um, native americans out there and there was there was a movie god uh, was it was it called something signals smoke signals signals? yeah Yeah, that was like one of the first movies i saw where there's native american leads there's also another movie called White Robe that came out when in the 90s, like around the same time as The Dance with the Wolves. It was a little edgier, but that also had like a white, you know, character, like, you know, like kind of savior kind of guy, like who realizes the Native Americans have all the answers. It's, I just hope like there's a date that comes where we just hear from the Native Americans. I thought it was good. And and, and spoiler alert, I did think it was a little distracting when Scorsese showed oh, up at no. the end. Don't, oh, well, you know what? We've already given away so many things. I, you and I will always disagree on that one. I thought that was a great, great scene. And uh, that was... You know, his his eyebrows are just so distracting. You know, it's just like... Sorry, man. I, as far as I'm concerned, Marty Scorsese... Oh, look, Marty, like, yeah, we're friends. We're going to go to Hell's Kitchen and have an Italian meal tonight. Uh, I just... The guy could do no wrong. I mean, he's... Come on, remember the guy's eighty-one or whatever he is, and he directed that movie, that Opus. I mean, I, I even when I criticize Scorsese, I still think I still think he makes great movies, and so I did like that movie. Um, I thought it was great, and um, I'm I'm sure it'll be uh, um, winning awards yeah, this year. Well, by the way, Romana is also working her way up to praising Quentin Tarantino. That'll be in our next show. Uh, I said I like some of his films. I'm never gonna say I don't like his. I'm just saying I don't get his foot fetish and other things about him. Yeah, and I think about you whenever I think about once. I think about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood all the time. It's one of my favorite movies. I've seen it five times at least, maybe six. Who knows? Uh, but the, your critique about the, his obsession with uh, Sharon Tate's feet, and I was chuckling. every every woman's feet. He had an obsession with Brad Pitt's feet too. To be fair. He was obsessed with Brad Pitt's. Did you notice those moccasins that he was wearing? How many close-ups of Brad Pitt's moccasins did we get? He's got some, I don't know what it is about QT and his feet thing, but uh, uh, 
anyway. All right. Uh, we have run out of time. Romana, thank you so much. Have, I hope you're going to have a great Thanksgiving dinner. I know the food is going to be excellent because your mother can cook. I assume your mother's cooking. Well, my mom's making the turkey and we're helping. Um, we're going to do Thursday Thanksgiving at my uh, my older sister's place. And then we're going to go to Michigan after that. But yeah, our, okay. our turkey definitely has a kick, an Indian kick to it. But we have all the sides. I helped my younger sister just make some macaroni and cheese a few minutes ago. So good. yeah, the food will be good. I hope you're having a good thing. Yeah, but poor Mick, man, guy's a vegetarian. He's going to have to eat that macaroni and cheese. Poor guy. No, the, the macaroni, he can eat macaroni and cheese. Yeah, he's not no eat macaroni and cheese. Yeah, yeah okay. he's, no, no, he's making Brussels sprouts too. And my older sister makes gravy for him without any meat. You know, we make we make sure he's he gets food to eat. So. The love Mick gets in this larger family is unbelievable. We should do a movie about that. My son in love Mick. Uh, it would it would actually be a good movie. A friend of mine told me I should do a book on marrying a white person. They, I was at I was at the wedding. It was unbelievable. It was like a state wedding in Skokie. There were so it was Skokie, right? Not Lincolnwood. Yeah, right? it was Skokie. It was so many people. That were at that, and it was like all these talk about journalists. What closer we began, the place was crawling with journalists. Uh, ben, about that last article he wrote, uh, uh, technically, uh, be quiet. <laughs> uh, anyway, Ramon, have a great Thanksgiving. Give my love to your family and Mick. Uh, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks, all right? Yep, talk to you later. Have a great uh, Thanksgiving. That's Ramon saying, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.